Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another beautiful summer week from Wisconsin. Rebecca Lynch is gone. She is on her way to Ireland, so lucky for her. She will be back after Labor Day. We look forward to having her back. We will dive back into our presidential uh, primary conversations when Rebecca returns, but we do have a special guest this week, a special panelist. It is Claire Zauke. Claire is a healthcare organizer here at Citizen Action, leading up our healthcare program, and we're super excited to have her. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. So we'll we'll hear more from Claire uh, a little bit uh, in just a minute. But first, Robert Craig, our executive director, is with us. Robert, how are you doing? Good morning, everyone. So we have a number of topics we're going to talk about. We're also uh, we will also be joined later in the show by Susanna Dyan from Caring Across Generations. We're going to have a conversation about caregiving in America and how this is a growing and critically important issue that uh, we're certainly going to be working on, and we look forward to talking more with Susanna about that. Uh, we're also going to talk about prescription drugs. A uh, lot, of, lot of movement this week, both within the state but also nationally, and uh, including uh, the governor. We're going to talk a little bit about Evers creating uh, a goal in our office to try to reach carbon-free goal. And uh, we have some news about an, a campaign that one of our co-op members is helping lead across uh, the state to retire Native American mascots. But let's get started. Uh, first of all, Claire, welcome to the show. And um, for our listeners who don't know, we just mentioned on the intro, you're sort of new here to Citizen Action, but leading our healthcare work. Why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit more about yourself? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so, uh, thanks, Matt. As you said, yeah. I'm Claire Zotke, and I'm the Healthcare for All Director here at Citizen Action, and I've been on the team full-time since the first week of June, and it's really exciting. I get to lead our healthcare policy and programming work, so um, this caregiving issue that we're going to talk about later, this prescription drug issue, those are all campaigns that are um, falling under my purview. It's really, really exciting stuff. I think healthcare is the conversation of the moment, both on the state and national level politically. Um, so it's a really exciting time to be doing this work. Well, we are thrilled to have you. You've been amazing since you've come on, and it gives us a lot more capacity to ramp up and do a lot more on healthcare. And we'll be talking about one of those campaigns later, the caregiving campaign, where we really want to ratchet up. But let's get started. Let's talk about prescription drugs. Um, this is, was a topic that um, for years was at the top, one of the top issues politically, and just for the last few years seems to sort of have drifted off for no good reason other than there's been this huge attack on healthcare broadly and just providing coverage, the attack on the Affordable Care Act, but um, the left and progressives are back on the, on the uh, offensive here on prescription drugs because the issue hasn't gone away. They are incredibly expensive, but... Uh, this week was a national day of action around prescription drugs, and Citizen Action was involved with a number of allies, and in particular also Congresswoman Gwen Moore, State Senator Latanya Johnson at a big event this week. Claire, tell us a little bit more. I know you put a lot of time into organizing it, uh, uh, a great event, but uh, let's talk more about it. 
Yeah, so this is a national campaign that has been branded the Lower Drugs Now campaign, um, and our theme is putting people over pharma profits. So this is a campaign that's, like I said, organized on a national level. Is it Lower Drug Prices Now? Lower Drug Prices Now. Yes. Okay. Yep, did I miss a word there? Sorry. No, right, the prices part. <laughs> the prices are really important. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to just drugs. give people fewer drugs. Yes. <laughs> Good catch there, thanks. Uh, so Lower Drug Prices Now, um, with the theme of putting people over pharma profits. And uh, it's a national campaign uh, that's being launched by a coalition of partners, of which we are a member, of which our National Affiliate People's Action is a member. And uh, really, we are trying to push Congress and the Trump administration to take comprehensive uh, legislative reform to make sure that uh, these big pharma companies and these drug companies stop holding people hostage. Um, because we know that there are people all over this country, um, a huge percentage of people who do things like rationing their medication, yep. who do things like um, cutting pills in half because they can't afford their medication. We know that critical life-saving drugs that people take every day, like insulin, have skyrocketed in prices. And we also know that Congress right now does not have a single um, comprehensive bill in introduction that would address everything it needs to address. There are some pieces of legislation out there that would um, solve part of the problem that are little pieces of the puzzle um, and would be great steps forward. So things like um, the Doggett Bill that would allow Medicare to negotiate um, prices around prescription drugs for people who, who are a part of Medicare, uh, which currently they can't do. But that doesn't, that doesn't apply to everybody. And, and real quick on the prescription drug yeah. prices, that that was that's a big piece that, if I'm correct, was missing from the Affordable Care Act, right? Like, we were unable to be able to really negotiate with the prescription mm -hmm. drug well, companies. Huge issue. It started as a law against it in Medicare Part D right. under W. Bush. That's right. And then Obama's calculation was because there was straight out extortion that if pharma spent two hundred and fifty million dollars trying to destroy the Affordable Care Act, it wouldn't pass, and so again, they were left out. And so they're like the NRA, but stronger. And so they're the elephant in the room in all of this is the pharma lobby. Yeah, so, so really this is some serious unfinished business of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. yeah. So Robert, I know we've talked about this before. Jeff Smith last year talked, in, Jesus was like, I'm hearing about this on the doors a lot, prescription drugs. Um, and it was something that in the last election cycle, it was out there a bit, but it, it hadn't risen to the top, and that is not going to be the same in 2020. This issue is, is clearly going to be much more at the agenda, and it's something that we ought to be able to do. We ought to be able to push through if we get some, certainly some changes uh, uh, in terms of representation. Well, right, if we, if we play our cards right, that is us as progressives, uh, but it is the situation is really, really bad, and it's going to continue to get worse because we've granted monopolies, basically, government-mandated monopolies for big pharma corporations, and, and the sky is the limit as far as how much profit they can make. They're funded by Wall Street, obviously, and they want endless, you know, look at the stock market bubble. It's partly pharma, right? So literally, if we're making 50% profit, why not 80%? If we're charging $10 for the pill, why not $50? Why not $100? So you have insulin, 
which is a, a great example, which diabetics need to live healthy lives if they skip their insulin treatments or don't take it. They're literally in the hospital with life-threatening conditions, okay, with huge costs to themselves personally and to the healthcare system. And literally, it's, it's tripled in the last 10 years. And the company Eli Lilly that makes it has $9 billion in revenue and paid no taxes last year. Uh, thanks to thanks to other the other big corporate tax giveaways going on both all the all the loopholes and then the Trump tax cuts, and so literally the public's getting fed up and there's a clear enemy and it's a little like the NRA in that they are going to go all out to destroy it, uh, and so this is a perfect progressive issue, uh, but you know Republicans just kill it just like got sensible gun reform right and so they have to be held accountable at the ballot box. Democrats sometimes aren't willing to be bold enough. You actually, to negotiate, have to, because if they won't negotiate in good faith and, pay, and charge in the U.S. what they charge in other countries, right, then you have to be able to limit their patents and, and, and open up competition and allow generic drug manufacturers to come in and compete as, as, a, as leverage. And that's something in neoliberal America which is hard to do because there's some notion there's a free market, though this is the, the least free market imaginable. We pay to create the drugs, they get a red leg monopoly, and they can charge whatever the heck they want. And so I think when we're talking about the free market, it's important for us to talk about the fact that the Trump administration, when negotiating the new form of NAFTA, NAFTA 2.0, Big Pharma is so powerful that they actually got provisions built into the new NAFTA that codifies and puts in law protections for these Big Pharma companies, protections that guarantee their monopolies and make it impossible for us to have competition through generic drugs and exports those bad policies to Mexico and Canada, so we might not even be able to get cheap drugs from Canada and anymore. And if enacted, would, would prevent us, if we win this presidential election, from doing what needs to get done on prescription drugs, if they can ratify these treaties, right? And you have Trump, who has the mind of the demagogue, right, knows this is a big issue, keeps making promises, but similar again to guns, once you get back to the White House and they start whispering, no, 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 Mr. President, you can't do that, then all of a sudden nothing happens. Yeah. So to bring it back home, <laughs> um, this is all to say this is why we need this comprehensive legislative reform out of the federal government. And that's why we are so excited to be part of this Lower Drug Prices Now campaign that we launched on Tuesday. And, and it was just really successful. Um, you know, Robert spoke and made all these great points. Congresswoman Gwen Moore spoke and was just so incredibly powerful. She shared her own personal story about the incredibly high cost, the $18,000 a month high cost of um, medications that she was dealing with. Um, as a cancer survivor. As a, can yeah. as a cancer survivor. Um, State Senator Latanya Johnson, who's an incredible ally of ours, spoke and talked about her personal story of caring for her grandmother as her grandmother aged and watching um, her grandmother's prescription drug prices climb and climb and being burdened as the, as the guardian of her grandmother. So everybody has this story, and it's so important that we're, that we're talking about it now. So we're going to talk more about this, but we got to take a break, and we'll talk more on the back end. Again, we're Citizen Action. This is the Battleground Wisconsin. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We were talking about prescription drugs and our National Day of Action before we uh, had to go to a break. But uh, wanted to bring this a little bit back to the state, uh, too, because the state has a role. And um, Robert, Governor Evers, he created a task force uh, to 
take a look at prescription drugs. Um, tell us more about this and, you know, what, what really could this task force do? Well, that's a good question, but um, just to give context, uh, Governor Evers actually ran on a very strong platform of prescription drugs, one of the strongest parts of his whole policy platform. He put reforms in the budget, which were not agreed to by Boss Voss and uh, Speaker and Majority uh, Leader Fitzgerald. And so he's keeping the issue alive. But obviously, it, it takes two to tango. So unless we build this tremendous public pressure, which we're trying to do in this campaign we talked about in the last segment that's being launched in Wisconsin and across the country, unless we can back down Boss Voss, then it's really setting it up as an election issue, unfortunately. But that's their choice. They could do the right thing. They probably won't. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you got right to it. This is, we're not legislating necessarily here, right, because of what we have in terms of uh, in the legislature. But this is a huge political campaign, and it ties to what I brought up before. This issue is growing. It's not going away. It's intensifying for all the reasons Robert talked about. And so we need to be talking about it. So while maybe this task force might not lead to specific legislation in the next 18 months, uh, it can help create a public environment that makes it extraordinarily difficult for these legislators out in, in all, all around the state. And one quick cautionary note, the pharma industry knows that there's this growing momentum for reform. If it doesn't, and believe you me, they're, they're withholding price increases over this that they'd like to do. If, they, if the threat passes, Believe you me, you'll see huge more another round of huge increases, and you'll we'll hear a lot more about thousand dollar pills and EpiPen yeah. scandals, et cetera, and all sorts of people chronic diseases or or life threatening conditions literally going without necessities or skipping pills, yeah. et cetera. Thirty percent of Americans on prescription drugs don't follow the prescription either by not getting the prescription at all because they can't afford it, or skipping pills, cutting them in half, et cetera. So we're going to continue to talk about this. And, and remember, folks, this is all about a campaign. So when we reach out to you, you hear from us about activities we're going to be doing, please get involved. We need to make this a extraordinarily uh, visible public issue uh, in this election. I uh, want to bring up something somewhat related, right, uh, around our health and our life expectancy. Uh, big news this week, uh, Wisconsin, for the, I believe, the second year in a row now, we've had a declining life expectancy. And, you know, I'm almost 50. And pretty much all my life, I think all my life, right, this thing has been rising. We've been increasing our life expectancy because of, um, you know, a lot of medical ish, uh, uh, great medical achievements and life changes. But this rollback is significant. Um, Claire, I, you know, I, it's my understanding that some of the main drivers of this is, is uh, increased suicide, opiates, uh, alcoholism. But it's really kind of us not really uh, taking care of ourselves and certainly seeing the effects of sort of the American experience uh, play out in our, you know, life expectancy rates. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think a big part of it is is certainly not taking care of ourselves, but I think there's a strong tie-in here to. I'm going to talk about healthcare policy because yeah, well, that, that's I, what I do I here. I wanted to right? get it out of the personal. <laughs> I, I was trying to take that personal approach, but there's a systemic thing going on that you need to talk about. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that um, there's a couple of things here, right? So if we talk about um, 
um, sort of the rollback or the, the potential rollback of some health care protections um, with the threat to the Affordable Care Act in federal courts right now, one of the provisions afforded by the Affordable Care Act is bundle health parity. Yep. And so if we're talking about people taking care of themselves, that's not just physical, that's mental, right? And so if we were to lose um, mental health parity, if folks were to lose um, guaranteed health care coverage and, and not be able to afford access to mental health uh, services, um, then that just bites into this growing, growing trend that you cited. Um, and, and I think this also links into the report and um, that Citizen Action released earlier this year about disparities and inequalities in cost of um, uh, drugs, prescription drugs that treat opioid addiction, yep. as well as our conversation earlier today, right? So um, insurance companies and drug companies can label the, the prescription drugs that treat opioid addiction um, and, and different drug formularies. So they could be labeled as preventative drugs, drugs that you have to take every day that would be largely covered, um, the cost of which would be covered by your insurance companies. Or they could be labeled in drug formularies as sort of tier four hyper-specific drugs that are incredibly expensive and that might be cost prohibitive for people who need them. So not only are the we still in the midst of an opioid sort of crisis that's claiming lives, but we're making it institutionally impossible for a lot of people to get the treatment that they need that would help reverse this trend. Um, so all around, I, I see that it's um, really um, a really challenging issue and really disheartening sometimes for folks. So this is both the US and Wisconsin, but yep. Wisconsin's losing ground vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the nation. So it's going worse here, and it's going far worse for African-Americans here. Yep. Death rate, the mortality rate has increased 24% in Wisconsin, and it's actually declined 6% for African Americans nationally. So there's a, a, a huge problem here. By the way, nationally, this is the first time life expectancy dropped since the influenza epidemic of 1915 to 1918. Wow. And for those of our listeners who don't remember that and didn't live through that, which is probably most of our listeners, uh, that was just, it was like, it wasn't quite the Black Death, but it was just stunning. There were just uh, people in every family were dying, okay? There's a great the American Experience episode on this that you should check out if you don't know anything about this epidemic. It's just a, kind of a forgotten uh, uh, tragedy in American history and world history in many ways, not forgotten by historians, but in kind of popular culture. And so, look, it's partly opiates, right? Where and what are we doing exactly? What are all ever? We keep passing all sorts of good-sounding bills that say they're going to resolve the problem, There's and a couple hundred and nothing's really done. Hundred thousand here, one thousand there. If you have a public health crisis that was like a flu epidemic, what would you do? You would act to scale, try to prevent mm -hmm. the transmission of the disease, mm -hmm. treat people who have it, etc. Right, and try to and try to isolate it. And we're not doing any of those things. It is. Substance use addiction is a is a is like a medical condition. Literally, it's a disease, and it needs to be treated. And we don't even require the insurance companies to make it uh, to, to make it no cost. We have all these barriers, right, uh, to people even getting treatment, right? Let alone, and we don't do any prevention to scale. Obviously, when you have a flu epidemic, you try to prevent anyone else from getting sick. We don't do prevention to scale, which we could be doing. And Citizen Action has been advocating for a long time. The other thing to bear in mind here, and by the way, this shows it's not just a rural issue. The worst problem is in Milwaukee County, not just among African Americans, but the white uh, rate of opiate addiction in Milwaukee County is twice the state average. So this is also a huge urban problem. It is a rural problem as well, but it's like everyone's problem is the way That's to right. see it. And the other thing is, 
Uh, some have often described the opiate epidemic, which was for, for, fueled by pharma, remember? Pharma companies literally got people addicted for profit deliberately and are now facing lawsuits and potential liability. But again, it was the greed of pharma, right? That these are that it's these addictions are addictions of despair. So the economic conditions people are facing are partly driving this. And we know we have uh, Great Depression-like economic conditions in Milwaukee for African Americans. That is a factor. And again, nothing to scale being done on that either. We've been talking about a big Green New Deal initiative that Citizen Action is working on, but that's the first time we're talking even about something to the necessary scale. Uh, but this is just stunning, and I'm just tired. It's sort of like the uh, I keep bringing up uh, guns as a uh, and, and mass violence as a metaphor, but the parents who say I don't want your prayers, I want you to do something for all the people who send their prayers, right, but won't do anything. I'm sick of politicians grandstanding on opiate addiction and offering nothing of the scale necessary. Here, here. Well, look, uh, this was a great conversation. We're actually going to talk a little bit more. We're going to talk more about caregiving, and this is a, sort of an extension of a health, broader healthcare conversation. And this death toll story and the increase or the decrease in life expectancy is sort of a clear measure that we ought to pay, pay attention to. But before we go to break, I do want to mention uh, something else that Governor Evers did this week. He created <clears throat> a new office and he set a goal for that office to reach a carbon-free goal by, what, 2050, I believe. Robert, this is uh, something that we're working on here in Milwaukee. We see this as absolutely critical uh, to, to taking on climate uh, and also aligning this uh, mission on climate to having a uh, economic justice and making sure that there's equity in terms of the kind of jobs that we create out of uh, tackling our uh, climate justice. Robert? And I feel a little embarrassed to applaud Governor Evers <laughs> for being aware of the science and actually taking notice and stating the obvious that we actually need to, to address this or there'll be a, a die-off of the human population. Um, but, and so, but the problem is he faces, again, you know, a legislature that will do nothing. I know the governor is, is committed to this he, uh, all along. This is a big test for his leadership because the question is, what can he do with only executive authority that could actually start moving the ball forward? What can he do? What can this commission do? And it's our understanding Mandela Barnes, Citizen Action Co-op member and Lieutenant Governor, will be spearheading this effort. Um, what can they do to help like the Milwaukee County, City County Task Force, things that Madison area, Dane County are doing, Eau Claire is doing, La Crosse is now doing, to actually give those local governments the tools to actually start to move the ball on moving to uh, dramatically reducing carbon emissions. So we need to cut it by 45% by 2030 to have a chance to prevent a genocide. Well, shout out to Evers for, for moving the ball on this, and hopefully we can. And by the way, just publicly, again, similar to the uh, task force on prescription drugs, we need to have a public conversation. So we're going to continue to talk more about that, but we got to take a break. When we get back... We are going to talk about caregiving in America, and uh, we're very excited about that. And we're going to be joined by a special guest, Susanna Dyan from Caring Across Generations. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are really fortunate to have a special guest with us. We're going to spend two segments talking with her. Her name is Susanna Dyan, and she is with Caring Across Generations. Susanna, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I did learn something 
uh, this morning from you, and that's that you're a listener of the show. Wow. Yeah. That's I'm such awesome. I'm a Wisconsin politics fangirl. Okay. So, fun. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about Caring Across Generations and uh, the amazing work you're doing around caregiving and, and that issue and elevating it. Yeah. Um, Caring Across Generations uh, was founded in 2011 with, as a joint campaign of National Domestic Workers Alliance and Jobs with Justice. Uh, and it came about because uh, NDWA's members, who are many of them are domestic workers and nannies, were you know there and more and more getting asked to care for an older loved one, right? So mom's had a heart attack. She's going to be with us a while. Can you watch her a bit? And the workers were, you know, it's a different kind of work caring for an older adult than a kid. And we're, you know, struggling with that and figuring out what kind of training do I need to be able to care for that, that kind of um, recipient of care. And through that sort of investigating this sandwich generation, right, that more and more families are caring for young kids and older adults, and that our care infrastructure, the programs, the supports, the policies for workers are just not there, right? And so how do we bring this care infrastructure so that any stage of life people can get the care that they need for their families. Yeah, and so um, part of what we're doing here in Wisconsin is to expand access to care. We've realized that that means that we need to support caregivers so that we can get more people into these professions. And so can you talk to us a little bit about what the caregiver shortage looks like at the national level and sort of why we think that exists? Totally. Um, so there, across the country, there is a shortage of caregivers. And the reoccurring problem is that these jobs are low-wage jobs, inconsistent schedules, and without benefits. So if you are earning minimum wage and you are not clear how many hours you're going to get in a week, you can't support your family and you can't work on it. You can't sort of sustain that. There's also no, often there's no career path, so it's unclear how you sort of make it a career and move up. Um, that's particularly acute in rural areas where often people... Well, to drive to a recipient of care, you have to drive two hours to get there, but you're not getting paid for those two hours. So you might see two clients a day, and that counts as three hours of work, but you're actually taking up nine hours of your day to do all of that and get everywhere. And not even making a living wage for the three hours. Exactly. Right? And doesn't it come down to, and this is true of a lot of professions that, that, are, that have been associated with women, that have had more women working with the men, that we that they've been paid less, not treated in the same way, and also treated almost as side jobs, like they mm -hmm. don't really need to be the breadwinner, when in fact, in the, in the economy that's existed since the 1970s, there's no such thing as, oh yeah, the, the, the husband works down at the plant, and so it's fine if, if, if the missus just picks up a few hours caregiving, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And this idea that it's sort of innate in women to do caregiving, and they innately do this work well, and it's actually really hard work to do. And it takes training, and it takes skills development to mm -hmm. learn how to lift someone well in a safe way, right? It takes skill development to understand, like, what are the signs that I should be paying attention to when they're taking different drugs, when they're coming back from uh, operation or something from the hospital into their homes? How do I think about remodeling the home? It's a real talent, mm -hmm. and then it takes real skill development. Exactly. Right? And there's, there needs to be more of it than ever before. There are more and more people living longer lives who need support because of medical advances, more and more people with disabilities who are able to live independently if they have support, right? Mm -hmm. And then right in Wisconsin, we eliminated uh, entirely almost the, uh, the uh, waiting lists 
uh, for personal care and home care. And now there's a new one, not because there's a waiting list officially, but because there's a shortage of caregivers. Mm -hmm. And just like in professions like teaching, another woman-predominated profession, there's this tendency not to think it's about how we treat the profession and how we treat the workers, that somehow that just costs us more money and that's bad. We don't say that about doctors. We don't mm -hmm. say, let's get a cheap doctor, right. right? But for caregiving, somehow it's okay. And in fact, you even get some legislators saying it's horrible that people are being paid, like caregiving is not supposed to be paid because then it's not right. humanitarian somehow. But we need caregivers, and the only way to do this is to, is to make it an actual profession where people advance, can have a living wage, can have vacations, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And they don't even have take time off, any kind of respite care, et cetera. So it seems we need to change our whole view of this. And you can't outsource these jobs. No, so from that kind of development standpoint, my goodness, if we do this, it's a huge tool for building more prosperity. And this is actually one of the biggest growing fields, right? The, health, the sort of home care, personal aid, Physicians' assistance is one of the sectors that is continually growing over the next 10 and 20 years. Yeah, so I'll jump in here because I actually was just reading a report that was produced by your organization, Caring Across Generations, that said that between 2016 and 2026, the direct care workforce will grow more than any single occupation in the country and that more than 7.8 million direct care job openings are going to need to be filled. Yeah, I was going to say, it is, it's been one of the top five uh, jobs projected to grow in Wisconsin by our state government has yeah. always had it on the list as being, in fact, over half of the job growth that they're expecting in Wisconsin are in low-wage service sector jobs. Even more than welders, yeah. which is an inside <laughs> joke that, that the Republicans like to talk about welders. Oh, in the need of welders. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that I think is really important, and to cut back to a point you said earlier, Robert, around this question of should you do this out of love? And that for us, it's like, it's not about love or not love. It's about honoring the work and naming it as work. And that historically, right, this idea of who does this work is women, is wives, even going back to slavery, right, who were the people doing the domestic work in homes and raising were un, uh, enslaved Africans, right? And so this is a history of, like, let's take this out of um, a place of assumed and into recognition of work and honoring it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll build on top of that. There's a big piece that we haven't talked about is that, yes, the majority of, of folks doing this work are women, but also they tend to be people of color and immigrants. Mm -hmm. So the same report that I that I talked about that Caring Across Generations produced found that 87% of these folks are women, but 57% are people of color and 25% are immigrants. And so there's a real, to, um, to our point, not just devaluing of the work of women, but also undervaluing and devaluing the work of people of color. And, and I think that is not just an economic crisis issue, but that is a racial economic crisis issue. Yeah. And that there is, so in, we think about how we can build a movement that aligns those who are professional caregivers, those that need care, and those that are unpaid family caregivers into a collective, right? That actually all of those self-interests can be shared and honored and won together. Um, but to your point, unpaid family givers produce in Wisconsin, produced an estimated $7 billion of economic value. Wow. Right? And so thinking about all of these people who step back from the workforce to care for a loved one, who are actually ensuring that the economy run. And, and I think, I don't know if I mentioned this in Battleground Wisconsin before or not, but I have some background in this as far as personal history, you know, you have to have a positive view of government. You have to change fundamental structures to deal with this. This isn't about 
the budget and the state budget giving a 1% increase for rates that isn't even remotely sufficient. There was actually a demand of disability rights and senior groups that we were part of that wanted a $15 minimum wage for home care personal care workers. It didn't go anywhere either with Governor Evers or with the state legislature, to be honest. So it's, this, is both, this is a bipartisan problem. But I worked closely when I worked for SEIU as the state council director with Governor Doyle to create union rights for home care workers. And it took six, seven years, but there was a established home care workers union that had just been codified when Walker dropped the bomb with Act 10. And so yeah. eight years of work was wiped away and we still haven't done anything about it. But we need those kind of structural reforms because those workers need a voice. We're not just trying to help them as charity, right? We need to empower them, and they're the ones leading the movement. That's what they do at Caring Across Generations and the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Absolutely, absolutely. Could I add one small thing to just get your comment on um, how this impacts workers, and that is uh, deinstitutionalization, which has occurred mm -hmm. over the last few decades. In Wisconsin, it certainly happened, which which is good, right? Like, these institutions don't always meet the needs, and most people want to be at home. How does that impact that as it relates to workers, their invisibility, right? They're not in large, even organizing, Robert, they're not in large institutions anymore, um, maybe a little less visible mm -hmm. um, in homes, uh, impact the ability to get caregivers kind of the rights that they want or just this issue in general? Yeah, that's a great point. I think that the move from into deinstitutionalization uh, de and into homes has made it more invisible, right? Because there isn't a place that you see. Um, and as someone who used to organize workers, right, there isn't a centralized place to go um, to meet a bunch of people and to build that worker power that we know we need uh, to change the structures and the way that folks are valued and that they are able to advocate for themselves. I think the other thing is that it's changed the culture of how care is given. Um, right, that it is, there's been a ton of work in the disability rights community, which I think is awesome, around the, the person who is getting the care, getting to decide how that care is done, right, and that if I'm a person living with disabilities, I have a right to decide how I receive the care as a means of empowerment. Yeah, that, that's actually critical, uh, but we got to quick take a break here. Um, when we come back, we'll, we'll talk more about caregiving. Uh, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. So Claire um, wanted you to tell our listeners a little bit about uh, Governor Evers created a task force, I believe about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago on caregiving. Um, your thoughts on that? And obviously that's important to getting this ball moving forward. Yeah, uh, he actually just released the names of the members of the uh, governor's task force on caregiving this week. And that's really exciting because now they can actually start working and their their first uh, meeting will be at the end of September. So uh, I just wanted to let our listeners know that our plan here at Citizen Action around this really important issue and problem that we just spent a few minutes describing to you is to try to work through that task force to ensure that their recommendations include our policy goals. So it includes a living wage for caregivers. It includes paid leave. It includes guarantees for health care. It includes um, having a path for professional advancement and a way to connect people who need care with people who can provide care. So, so we're really excited about that. And then to try to hold the governor and the legislature accountable for actually adopting those recommendations. So 
that actually raises a, a great question to go back to our expert here, Susanna. So if, if this task force could sort of have a magic wand and come up with it, politics didn't matter right away, um, what would be sort of the Green New Deal for caregivers, right? If we were to come up mm -hmm. with a new vision that, that sol not only solves the problem of caregiving, but also you know, creates an economy that functions for the workers and everyone so it's sustainable. What would that look like? Yeah, so we have this vision around universal care. The, and I see it as the connecting link between Medicare for All and the Green New Deal in reshaping our economy to support families at any stage of life. So some parts of long-term supports and services are medical. If you have a fall, you need some home care when you get home to rehabilitate, um, that's absolutely medical. Sometimes what you need is support when you're old. I have a neighbor who's 96. He, what he needs is someone to help him do his laundry because he can't bend over, right? And I do that when we, like, coordinate it. But that's not a medical issue, and we don't want it to be a medical issue. That's a caregiving issue. Green New Deal is essentially a jobs guarantee, but if you don't put in place supportive child care, supportive elder care, paid leave policies, only certain people are going to be able to get those jobs and reap that economic development. And other folks are going to be stuck in jobs like childcare, like home care, that should be valued because of the immense work they do for our society and communities, but are deeply undervalued, right? And it's a moment to re, um, to address historic wrongs of leaving out domestic workers and farm workers from the green new, uh, from the original New Deal, right? That these are workers that deserve the right to unionize and deserve the right to show their power and their value in society. And then if someone has an illness or an injury or is just aging or has a disability and we heal them with, with, with acute medical care, send them home, if they don't have support, it doesn't work, right? Exactly. So there's also an, an interaction between uh, medical care and, and caregiving and support as well, right? Exactly, exactly. It's, this, it's sort of the middle link to how, how do we see our healthy community, how do we see a safe community, and how do we see a community that can sustain itself financially and into a, a climate just future. Yeah, and I would add that if you think about the communities that uh, need caregiving services the most and communities who are first and most directly, most severely impacted by the global climate crisis, those populations are very, very similar, right? Mm -hmm. So if we think about um, older adults, people with disabilities, young children, um, like those are folks who... Um, are both um, really uh, directly uh, frontline communities, I should say, who are um, often most affected by things like heat waves. Um, if they don't have air conditioning, really susceptible to uh, being overheated and heat stroke. Folks that are um, more susceptible to um, winter weather, um, severe mm -hmm. weather disasters, right? Um, through snow or ice and slipping and falling or being too cold if their homes aren't properly heated, right? So, so frontline communities that are most directly by global climate change and also also communities that need to be supported in the caregiving process, right? Um, and so I think by investing in, um, and the same goes for you know low-income communities, for mm -hmm. example. Um, so this, I think by investing in uh, caregiving, we're also supporting those communities in their resilience um, in the face of global climate change and of severe weather effects um, and events, which we know will happen more frequently as the global climate changes. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's, I mean, I think that's a great point. And I, um, in a past life, was a climate justice organizer around Superstorm Sandy rebuilding in New York. And one of the stories we heard over and over again was the question for home care workers, whether they leave their client during a, you know, during a disaster, 
and go home to their kids. And if they leave their client, that client dies, right? If they're on dialysis, if they're homebound, if they need support. And that question of how are we caring for each other happens in moments of crisis really acutely, but every day we know families are in crisis. Yeah, so to bring a Wisconsin example to this story, um, when I, so I just finished my, my master's degree at the La Follette School in Madison, and my senior capstone project was working with the city of Madison around uh, resilience and trying to develop a resilience plan in the face of climate change. And the impetus for this project was that Madison, back in 20, summer of 2018, had massive flooding that I'm sure our li listeners are all aware of, because the city of Madison is on an isthmus. And so when the lakes flood and you get a significant amount of rain, all of that water and the rivers that connect them just overflow mm -hmm. and the city realized like in the middle of this massive flooding crisis that there were um, communities of homebound seniors and people with disabilities right in the flood zone and that they knew how to keep manhole covers down they knew when to open the levees in the lakes they knew how to they knew where to put sandbags but they didn't know how to get people out of their living community if the waters got any higher and so, so these two issues are just inextricably linked. And it is, it is so important, um, you know, not just in New York in the event of a hurricane, but here in Wisconsin in the event of, of major weather events like flooding and heat waves and cold waves. So what would this take? I mean, we're, we at least are in an age now of talking about big things again. I mean, the 90s were depress depressing, right? The last six years of the Clinton administration, even in Obama, it became kind of small ball. So it requires a huge amount of revenue. It, it requires getting through all of these arcane 18th century structures like a Senate filibuster. It actually, we're, we're not in a situation where just electing Democrats would be enough to do this, right? It, that would be more promising, but not enough in and of itself. And so it, what, it really seems like it requires a movement, right? Yeah, I think it requires a movement. And I think it's also about, I run these trainings and there's a moment where people move from thinking that they have done a bad job supporting their families to mm -hmm. see, right, like, collect, like personal shame mm -hmm. to collective responsibility. Like that we actually need to shift the way that our hearts and minds hold caregiving to recognize how we're all actually in this together and that we need to be supporting each other. And that if you're having trouble like taking care of your kids and your sick uncle, that's not a personal failing, but society is setting you up to be unable to do that. So yep. I wanna paint a, a little picture from an economic perspective on this as, as I'm sitting here listening to this and thinking about, we started talking about how this is the biggest growing job. And this industry, and the service industry broadly in caregiving, right? Huge growing industry that right now is, is not something that is helping spur our economy properly. Could you imagine, though, folks, listen, listeners envision if those jobs became sort of the good union jobs of the 50s, like the UAW or an auto worker job, and you could actually make these sustainable jobs in our communities that have all these extra benefits that we've talked about on here um, and what that means to an economy mm -hmm. to sort of recreate a middle class or at least, you know, not have folks living in poverty. Um, so this is absolutely critical, uh, it, but it just connects to everything. It's incredibly powerful. And in a state where we know we need to create higher paying jobs in order to have our economy function, we talk about wanting people to stay in our communities, right? Mm -hmm. Like 
Uh, this is an industry that you can't export, can't uh, contract it out, right? Like, you can't send it to another country. This work has to be done in our communities. Yeah, and we see this as uh, exactly to that point, particularly in kind of rural communities and communities that have had a structural change in their economy, that this is a key strategy to actually keep people in those communities and able to hold on to that community pride, right? People love the places they live by and large. And so how do you support people staying and growing and developing and having their own families and being healthy and doing more than just kind of surviving, but thriving. And, this is, and you know, there's a lot of talk about protecting the rural way of life. Mm-hmm. This is a potential way to do that and allow people to age in place. Exactly. And allow, or allow people to move out to rural areas who, mm-hmm. who, who can, right? Exactly. And so there's all of that. So you'd be in a position to know, Matt brought up, you know, the, the um, outsourcing. I assume they haven't really made pro- much progress on caregiver droids, so we don't have to worry about automation yet. <laughs> no. Well, and I think people are quite concerned about having grandma being taken care of by a robot. Like. <laughs> robot vacuum cleaner, maybe. But Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, on that lighthearted note, we are going to have to bring this to a close. Uh, We want to thank you for taking the time to join the podcast. And that's your regular avid listener. That's amazing. Uh, But we also want to thank Caring Across Generations for leading on this issue and investing here in our state to try to help us figure out how we can build that movement that you talked about. So we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And it's been such a joy working with all of you and listening to the podcast every week. So, folks, we got to run, and we want to, first of all, I want to thank Claire for being a special Aww. guest. We'll definitely have her on again. She did a fabulous job. Rebecca, we still we still like you, too. Get back from Ireland. Have a great vacation. And always thank Brian Woldridge, our producer, who makes the podcast and the show happen every week. But with that, we got to wrap it up. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We'll see you next week. <laughs>